The sustainability movement is building powerful momentum around the globe. Businesses of all sizes are being regulated and rated in terms of how they treat the planet. And expectations are rising even as the deadlines they are working against contract. So how effectively is business responding? What steps must companies of all sizes take? What obstacles can you anticipate and overcome? This week's guest has been a global leader of the sustainability movement for two decades, offering expert insights into our progress and potential as business leaders and builders. As we come to the close of 2022 and look 2023 in the eye, don't miss this chance to understand where we are now and where you, your company, your industry and business at large must go next. So let's dive in and find out. From We First and Goal 17 Media, Welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And this week I'm joined by Koan Sritsenius, CEO and founder of Sustainable Brands, the premier global community of brand innovators who are shaping the future of commerce worldwide. And we'll discuss the evolution of sustainability efforts around the world and the positive progress we're making, as well as exciting and disruptive new companies, technologies and collaborations that are unlocking huge marketplace opportunities in the future. So Koen, welcome to Lead With We. So nice to be with you. Now I have to, full disclosure, Koen and I have known each other for what, almost 15 years probably? Has to be. And we uh, have traveled different markets in the world, all through the lens of sustainability and she hosts these amazing conferences all around the world. So let's just start off by getting people a clear understanding of what sustainable brand is. Oh, that's always the the, the big question. <laughs> I, I, I consider us a change agency. We're, we're really a, a global community of people who are working together to try and create the shift in the global economy that will enable brands to win through environmental and social innovation in, uh, this century. And we do that through conferences, yes, but also through a peer peer member network and through a variety of co-creative initiatives and tools and assessments and research and a lot of other things all aimed at that goal. And, you know, an organization like yours needs to be all those things because what Koan and I have connected about is the incredible opportunity inherent in business to be a driver of positive change. But as anyone can imagine listening to the podcast, we're all been pretty set in our ways for a long time. And we need to shift gears dramatically and we're running out of time. And to get there, you've really got to leverage different mindsets, different behaviors, different tools and so on. So, Cohen, I mean, we're, we're at the end of 2022 and on the back of two very difficult years before that, how would you characterize this year yourself? Do you think it's been putting aside things like COVID and so on, but more focusing on, on sustainability? Has it been a positive year? Has it been progress? How would you characterize it? I would say we're actually crossing the chasm in a real way. I say that partly because of the rise, uh, and, and we can talk about whether it's good or bad, of the whole ESG phenomenon. Also, just I think from what we see, more and more of the companies that we work with are starting to really understand that this is a major internal transformation, you know, business transformation challenge, and that it is not only a mandate, but an opportunity for differentiation and growth in the future. And so there's, we're seeing a rush to the ball at the moment. And what you said there is so important. For so long, it's always been a nice to have, or isn't it nice that people were in earlier days green or sustainable or, or God knows what? 
But now what you talk about is reputation and differentiation and marketplace opportunities. Like the, the business rigor is there. Would you say that's fair? I, I would say the business mandate is clear. I would say the business rigor is still being figured out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. That's fair. That That's fair. And one of the things that you have that, you know, is so compelling is you have a lens on all these different markets around the world. I mean, sustainable brands conferences, are, is it 12 countries around the world? We're 13 pre-COVID, spinning back up. Yeah. All right. So give us a sense of the shape of the sustainability dialogue in different markets, not to oversimplify, but give us some sort of sense of that topography of change, you know? Yeah. Well, I think Europe has been ahead of us for quite some time from the standpoint of the regulatory environment. And so that has enabled companies in Europe to be a little bit more pro progressive in the commitments that they make. That said, we would commonly su suggest, I'm going to say this, in, how can I say this in a, uh, in, in a kind way, innovation is not necessarily the expertise of the European markets. So we do see operational rigor Challenges. and, and it, yes. And then I think more just brand positioning and that and, and product innovation and that sort of thing is is coming from other parts of the world, including here in the US. It's actually really true what you're saying. I've had, you know, because I jump around for the, with the book speaking and so on, I've been struck sometimes the markets in Europe very much look to the US as a sort of an innovation engine, yes. yet they're actually further down the track in terms of sustainability yep. and ESG. And maybe that's because of the regulatory aspect, as you mentioned. What, what about Asia, the APAC region? What's it like? Um, it's growing. Uh, you, you know, actually, Japan is our largest community of convening uh, companies. And I think we we often talk about Japan being fast followers, and they definitely are that. They're very hungry to learn and very much have a long-term lens on everything they do, right? The the notion of if you go anywhere in the world, uh, Japan has the most companies that exist that are that are over a hundred years. Or, or even beyond that. So part of that is just the cultural mindset towards long-term thinking, which is very aligned with with the sustainability mindset, right? Well, that's really interesting. The, the number of longer-term companies, you've sort of institutionalized that generational responsibility from a cultural point of view. I right. love that. You started in this game way before. It was top of mind, cool, mandated or otherwise. I joined somewhat later. How would you characterize the evolution of this conversation, because I remember back in 2010, when I was starting down this road, I could not buy a lunch to talk about this stuff with anyone. Everyone was like, oh, it's so cute that someone like you exists, but it's never going to happen. And there's the door. What was yeah. it like for you in the beginning? I mean, obviously very similar. I mean, I uh, sort of uh, caught the the um, compulsion, if you want to say, in 2002. So I've been working at this problem slash opportunity space for a very long time. And I will say that, yes, there was no felt market need. I, I did feel very confident at the time that the market drivers would be such that the um, the work would be inevitable. So it was really about trying to find that pocket of people who psychographically understood the the system and the challenges and bringing them together for a conversation about what they were seeing, and then trying to really be begin to build the business justification for the conversation. So, you know, traditionally that meant starting with the sustainability or CSR people who did understand the problem space and were already cued into that and trying to help them understand that they could be a more strategic asset to the company rather than just a cost structure and a, a, a risk mitigation, mitigation resource. So that was the first part of the, the journey. What was the catalyst for you, Cohen? I mean, you know, we all come to it for various reasons. And 
for me, I, I looked at the power of storytelling out there in the marketing world and advertising world that I was in. I thought, wow, if this was applied meaningfully to businesses of force for good, it could be transformative. That was the catalyst for me. What was it for you that, because the folks listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs and business leaders who are all wrestling with how, how much they should prioritize this effort amongst all their other priorities. So what was it for you? hundred percent that. I was really agitated by the narrative at the time that said that business was the enemy of our future and that NGOs and governments were going to save the world. I, I really was fortunate in the first half of my career to grow up in a, a family-owned, very purpose-led company that um, leveraged that purpose and passion for people to grow that business from $20 million to a billion during the, t- the course of the time I was there. And so I, I really experienced the power of purpose in people firsthand uh, to drive profit. And, you know, when I, I left that company for, for reasons that attached to another story, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, looked around me and realized that that wasn't a common understanding in the world. And I felt like, you know, this is, this was an aha that needed to be popularized. What you've done masterfully, perhaps better than anyone else I've seen is convene a community around what we all care about, the, the shared values and the impact that we want to have. And I want to push in on this because in my experience and all the companies that we work with at WeFirst, you know, there's usually an internal stakeholder, an internal champion that is driving this. It's not always a CEO. In fact, more often than not, it's not. And then suddenly one rallies around that and they self-identify to be part of it. You have done this on a scale over a period of time more so than anyone I know. What is that secret source? How do you capture that sort of intangible esprit de corps to rally people around you so that people listening can do it inside their own companies? I mean, it's really not a mystery from my standpoint. It's A, being authentic and and B, asking the questions vocally that you're interested in having answers to, right? I, I, I guess part of the reason I was motivated to start this, this business and community was because I wasn't able to have conversations that I was interested in having. And I found that there are a lot of people who are interested in having the same conversations. And you're right, they don't necessarily line up behind a title or a uh, station in a career more and more. So that's true because of the business mandate, Um, you know, and I think social media was a really big help uh, at the beginning because, you know, I started in social media and in the late nineties and, you know, I don't want to get off Twitter. I don't use it anymore, but I have, I have, you know, Coan as, as my social media handle everywhere. And I hate to. Wow. You're old. That's OG stuff. That is like, that's like Bay or Beyonce or something. But at that, you know, at that point in time, you know, in the sort of emergence of social media, people were looking for like-minded individuals to have conversations about things they couldn't have elsewhere. So it was helpful to use that medium. I, I could I, talk about other strategies, but uh-uh. no, I, I actually think that point is really well taken, which is if you are inside a company of any size and you feel a compulsion to do it, mm. yet you're almost stalling yourself because you're waiting for permission, um, mm. a center of excellence, a CEO permission or whatever. It's about just volunteering that conversation because if you're feeling it, others are feeling it as well, right? Amen. Absolutely true internally. Yep. And, and find a community outside the company that can help you understand proof points and, and so forth to help you build your case. Right. And it, it always comes back to the business case, right? It's anyone who thinks that, you know, this space, this work, the opportunity that's inherent in our future turns on anything other than the role of capital in making that possible. They're just too naive by half. I mean, you know, that's Correct. after years in this space. I mean, that I think we, we both feel that way. How have you, to that point, teased apart? 
the or how do you have you sort of facil- facilitated the coexistence of doing good and doing well? You know, over the years, companies would come to you that were sort of the sustainability leaders. And then there were the fast followers, as you say. And then now there's a, a larger sort of momentum behind it. Have they, are they fully integrated now? Purpose and profit, sustainability and, and sort of return, ROI, shall we say? Yeah, I would say, I mean, as we said earlier, the proof points are so broad at this point and uh, span so many different kinds of ROI that the question of whether or not a company should be looking at this space as a, again, to avoid risk or loss of competitive advantage is clear. What to do about it is not clear. We're in in a very chaotic time when companies, you know, as I said earlier, are trying to, are are realizing that they're, that this is a, 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 something I I like to say, because I um, managed through the digital transformation in the nineties, that this is the next digital transformation sustainability is. And and so it's not like uh, it's going to touch every part of business and how that unfolds is still being divined. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and exper- experimented with, right? I mean, what do you see in the companies that you work with? I, I assume much of the same. Yeah, it, it is much of the same in that, you know, here's how I'd characterize it. Like even up to like seven years ago, we'd be talking to the philanthropic arm of a company or maybe mm-hmm. their sustainability division that was siloed out. And then eventually, because sustainability and marketing weren't talking to each other, there'd be this sort of uncomfortable marriage between the two and because marketing really didn't think about that. They're thinking about product and point of sale and moving units and so on. And now it's migrated to the CEO and even more so to the CFO, the chief financial officer, which kind of points back to this point about money. You know, it really, when it, when it impacts the bottom line, especially when there's regulation and compliance issues and so on, the, the lead, the stakeholders and leadership shift yeah. to reflect that. Have you noticed the same? Absolutely. And I think back to my comment earlier about the advantage and disadvantage of ESGs, uh, the visibility of ESG out there in the market right now. Um, I think the, the good news is that 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 the finance office is uh, becoming aware of the need to address these topics. The bad news around it is that, that um, moving this conversation into the finance office solely separates it from innovation and and growth. And now we see a whole bunch of uh, people being hired to do nothing but um, drive metrics and report on metrics of various sorts, many of which may or may not be meaningful in any way, but are simply things that external stakeholders are asking to see, right? And that, Data is this that, life raft, you know? Yeah, that could be, I mean, it could set us back. I mean, there's two things that could set us back. That's one of them. Another one is is the rush to respond through marketing without uh, internal integrity, which leads to greenwash or threat of greenwash. So right, you, you, know, right. you were you were just you were coming into the this space after the last green uh, greenwash debacle in the two thousand seven um, mm-hmm. time frame, right? Two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, which really came about because. People recognized the market drivers, thought there was a lot of growth, didn't know what they didn't know. I don't believe it was because they were trying to greenwash. It was just because they they wanted to jump aboard and didn't understand what they didn't you know didn't know. I, I think the same thing is happening now, just a broader swath of of companies around the world. And there certainly are more tools and more knowledge base uh, around. There's also a lot more skepticism and 
more stakeholders that are holding uh, people to a higher standard. And so even behavior or claims that would have seemed legitimate and really are legitimate are being criticized, which is in its own impediment to progress. I think, you know, I, I appreciate the activists, but, you know, if they're not careful, they can slow things down rather than speed things up, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I've heard the term, obviously, green hushing out there where the regulation is such that companies feel compelled to do more, yet at the same time, because they're not doing it all right all at once, they don't want to point to anything they're doing. What's the solution to that? What, what, what do we do going? I mean, I'm, I, I've just been a huge proponent of authenticity and transparency. We, it's one of the hardest things that we find getting companies to do is say what they're not doing well. Right. <laughs> Right. And, and, and yet it's just like, you know, it's just like a, a, our personal relationships. We want people to show up and be who they really are. We, we don't want secrets in the closet that we're not aware of. And if, if secrets are disclosed and somebody's, you know, forthcoming about either not knowing how to deal with the problem or having an inability to deal with it today, <laughs> but having made a, 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 you know, clear commitment to change, there is going to be trust that, that comes out of that, right? I, I think that's an incredibly powerful point. Counterintuitively, disclosure and your shortcomings yeah. actually builds trust more effectively yeah. than managing the optics because of the street or investor expectations and so on. I want to ask you about an inherent tension in this discussion about ESG. You mentioned in 2007, 2008, the life cycle of greenwashing and so on. And now here we see it with ESG. And from my point of view, sometimes you look at it and go, this is the natural evolution of any conversation as it becomes more sophisticated, more mature. There's like shiny squirrel. Everyone rushes over to it. There's a flight of capital towards it. Everyone says, you're just managing the optics. There's a shakeout about who's doing it for real. And it's a reset and so on. The challenge I find today is that the timelines we're working against are not as expansive as they were in 2007, 2008. We're out of time. Yeah. In which case, what needs to happen differently with ESG investments today if we're going to course correct our future somewhat? I don't think we have a problem with that. My, my sense is that everybody is feeling the, the, the need to, to rush to the ball. I, I think there's a lot of chaos out there right now because so many people are trying to work the problem. And you know, it's messy. And right. what can I say about how, what to do differently? It's necessary for us to go through all these machinations around figuring out what's appropriate to measure and what, you know, what's really meaningful and impactful to measure and what isn't. It, it's a process that we have to go through. And in the meantime, you know, I, I think we try to counsel companies to think about double materiality uh, for one thing, right? Um, materiality has, 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 traditionally been basically a survey of people's perceptions of what's Im important to you in, in terms of your impact, positive or negative as a company. Uh, and the fact is that most of those stakeholders are not educated enough to be a, a fair um, you know, and, and, and rational judge of, of what's material. It's important to know what your stakeholders think, but you also need to go to the science. Exactly. And, right. So I think that's, that's one key. That's So- I mean, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the sustainable brands community, there's a large number of corporate sponsors and partners who are some of the biggest companies in the world, the biggest CPGs, B2B companies, financial services companies. So for that cohort of large companies that everybody knows, 
who have self-selected to be part of the community, what do you see them doing? You mentioned double materiality report and so on. Yeah. Like what are leaders doing today? Give us some insight there. I was saying, um, trying to drive this work into the core of the DNA of the company, de-siloing it. it, 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 it. And, and, and that's, that's where leadership sits right now. Trying to uh, understanding scientifically um, material impacts and, and driving innovation through systems change and through product and service innovation. So it's, you know, it, it is those things that we hear about. It's just getting them done. It's in the doing of actually pulling it through the organizations. Yes, exactly. What are, some, what are some of the biggest roadblocks you see inside organizations? Is it the tension between the lesser class and leadership who may want to do things differently? Is it, I don't know, flight of talent after the great resignation, quiet quitting and so on? What are the challenges right now? I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing consistently around the conversations I'm I'm having is just skill building. You know, it, mm. it, all of a sudden you're trying to drive transformation across your organization. You can't do that with the the sustainability CSR teams or you know some couple of of brand leaders who know what they're talking about. It's got to be involving every single person in the company. I mean, this is one of the things that I realized starting. Sustainable brands was first had to get people to realize that brand is is much more than previously thought. It's it's who you are, what you do, and how you do it. And every person in the company is is a reflection of your brand and is your brand. Uh, and then you know what is sustainability, which is a whole another topic of conversation. Yeah, I mean it is. It's these terms are both helpful and unhelpful in different yeah. ways at different times, depending on what's going on. I mean, obviously COVID, the war in Ukraine, the global supply chain disruption, inflation, recession, all of these things could be experienced as disincentives for doing this sort of work and prioritizing it. Because the knee-jerk reaction is, let's just move product and keep our business going. Are you seeing a reaction that way? Or are you seeing those companies who know that they've got to do this work leaning in? Uh, uh, the latter, for sure. And, and I think that's, you know, the, the reality is that multinational corporations have analysts who are looking at commodity risks and supply chain risks, and they understand the implications of climate change and all of the things that come with that, uh, population migration, water shortages, all of those things. And so, you know, the art is is all in uh, in trying to figure out how to navigate in the right direction at the right pace while still meeting the, fulfilling the rules of the game. And I think that's that's the challenge, you know. We've you, you've heard us talk about the holy grail is about changing the rules of the game, right? And that's right. that's really what we have to to be getting serious about. Yeah, I mean, let's push in on that a little bit more because I think you know one of the ways I express it is if we've got an old mindset and we expect new behaviors, we're right. kind of foolish because it's not going to happen. Yeah. As you say, you've got to change the rules of the game so that the way people interact and what they think is important is different. How do you go about changing the rules of the game? Is it just laying them out? And laying out the business case and the incentives for it. Well, I think it's it's about um, combining collaboration and, and combining voices with other peers and and other business leaders and other sectors. I think the, the one of the things I'm excited about right now is that for the first time we're finally able to have a conversation about the necessary uh, alignment between lobbying practices and political donations and so forth uh, with uh, sustainability or purpose commitments. You know, it used to be those things were not tied together and it's still in large part true for most companies. And so getting government affairs and into the conversation and starting to really 
look oneself in the eye and realize that that level of lack of integrity is a, um, is is a uh, automatic fail. <laughs> is there? But is there any way around that? Because I always think about how Paul Pullman famously suspended yeah. quarterly reporting, and you've got the average tenure of a CMO is eighteen months and six days or whatever it is, and yeah. then you've got the life cycle of an election process, which you've got midterms after two years and annual, you know, national elections and so on. Are you seeing any cracks in the lobbying world, in the government affairs world, where they realize what's at stake it actually sort of transcends the election cycle? Mm, I can't say for sure about that. I can only say that that stakeholder group is finally, at least the the, the people who are driving, who believe that innovation for sustainability or purpose is the necessary path to growth in the century are knocking on the door of government affairs and right. engaging them in the conversation. And and that's, I, from what I see, that's where we are now. Uh, yeah. And the opportunity is to get those people together and, and actually say, okay, what, what conditions could we influence that would level the playing field for all of us so that we could move more quickly to reduce the risks that are coming down upon us every day. I mean, the reality is that all the things you mentioned, COVID, supply supply chain disruption, and all of that are climate change related, sustainability related, mm-hmm. driven by by sustainability related issues. Right. They're, you know, and and they're not going away. No. They're going to get worse. So you know, people can bury their head in the sand, but the only outcome for that is to you know uh, the. The, the simple way to say it is, I don't remember who who said it recently, but there's no uh, no growth on a dead planet or no brand or no business on a dead planet, right? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I mean, you know, sometimes we're all talking about ROI, you know, across right. reputation, all this sort of thing. You go, I don't know, what's the ROI of, I don't know, being in business or surviving or yeah. having a viable yeah. planet to live on? Yeah, exactly. So for those who are listening to this podcast who obviously – cannot avoid the dialogue, whether it's COP27 or all the other things going on that show that this is here and will continue to be here, but they haven't yet done it themselves. Whether they're a mid-sized company, a large company, a startup, maybe give us three steps on how you begin this process to sort of start being relevant to the future. Let me keep it as broad as that. I mean, I hate to answer that with solutions that we've created, but obviously we've created sure, solutions sure, for, absolutely. for that problem yeah. just by virtue of, of our mission and purpose. But I, I think it's self-assessment is the place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that needs to be both internal self-assessment and also marketplace assessment, understanding what your, where your consumers are and how they perceive you. And, and those two things... When you know when we talk about self-assessment, I'm I'm referring to our brand transformation roadmap, which really sure. people understand that that a sustainable brand is aligned across its purpose, but also its product and service innovations, its operations, its uh, communications or brand influence, its marketing, and its and its governance. And so you know if we have a maturity model that allows you to self-assess to to actually benchmark yourself against other companies. Uh, takes a much more holistic, strategic look at at the work, which is appropriate for the moment. So I guess, yeah. So know where you are uh, relative to your competitors. Know where you, what your customers um, see as opportunities. You know, we've got workshops that that we run and that you you are also helping us build and run that that can help uncover purpose articulation for those people who don't know what their purpose is as a company, you got, you got to know what your reason for being is. And then right. you need to understand what kind of innovation opportunities there are for your organization or for your brand. 
and then you got to execute. <laughs> yeah, you've got to execute. It's, it's in the doing. And let me ask you, you know, it's one thing to look at an individual company. It's another to look at the industry. It's another to telescope out and go, wait a second. To change the rules of the game, we've all got to collaborate and pre-competitively collaborate in ways that were unimaginable before. And you have these 12, 13 markets around the world. At the same time, we've got right-wing politics. We've got down pressure on the stock market and all these other things that we've touched on. So there's a lot of things that kind of force people onto their back foot to take care of themselves at a time when we want to keep the horizon lines long and we want to work together in new ways. So how have you sort of woven that connection around things that are higher than ourselves? Because yeah. we've got to do that on a, like, on a human scale around the world immediately if we're going to get there. You know, it's on my mind, Simon, and I can't remember if I shared this with you, but I've been thinking about the importance of localization of, mm. for a number of years, probably 2017 or, or 16 or 17. And I, I am feeling that now is the time for that conversation. It, the, the reality is that I'm sure there are corners of the world who don't understand what's going on with us collectively the solutions are going to be local solutions. And we, we do need to have networks to share learning across the system, the broad system. But progressive science-based sustainability people understand that sustainability is local. It's contextual. It's not cookie cutter. It's, you know, there are issues to address. And so I think the good news is start at home, start in your operations, your, your close-in operations. And I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think, you know, from our experience of working with nonprofits and foundations over the years, one of the things I've learned that can be transposed over the for-profit world is impact is local. Yes. You can have the architecture at a global level, but you yes. need to kind of take uh, responsibility and stewardship and custodianship for your local environment. You also have a unique lens on which lever to pull. I'm, I'm putting all of this pressure on you to solve <laughs> these these. There's very curly questions, but in my mind, there's the inherent wisdom of indigenous cultures around the world that we have been ignoring, but are slowly waking up to. That is one powerful yes. driver of change. Then we have these large legacy industries that are retooling because of market pressures and so on. But then you've got this enormous cohort of innovative startups that are just had no sort of capital investments, no baggage from the past who are just going like hell. As you look at the sustainable brands community and companies involved and so on, what's driving what and when in which order, or is it all of the above at any one time? I mean, I think it's all of the above at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, uh, the direct-to-consumer innovation that's going on is one of the market drivers that's pressing multinationals to, to think more creatively. They're realizing they're being disrupted. So I, I don't think it's any one thing, you know, I, I think... You, you back to your I, the question I thought you were going to ask is yeah, what are please <laughs> what are, what are a couple of the things that we co could collectively try to do to change the rules in the game in in ways that would positively impact all of the players setting a price on carbon yeah. um, is is one of those things and there's more and more conversation about that thankfully and lovely to have leaders like Microsoft who are doing that internally already and others the other one for me is. Eliminating short-term trading. I, I just, you know, continue to feel that the whole stock market, uh, capital market system is really just legalized gambling, and that right. is healthy for any, all of us, all of us. Cohen, 
there's a necessary shakeout within the ESG investment community now between those who are, you know, doing it authentically with integrity and those who are really dismissing it as another sort of, you know, flavor of the month. Like, how do you see that conversation shaking out and, and why is it happening? I mean, for me, it's it's very similar to the green greenwash uh, trend or or moment of the 2007 timeframe. It's just that this is happening now in the investor community. The investor community is is getting on board with sustainability, sees it as an issue, but they don't really know what they don't know, and so their um, their approaches are an attempt to recognize and and support the movement that they feel is necessary but not necessarily as well grounded as it ultimately will be. And so, you know, again, we just, we have to, we have to keep pushing through this learning experience, not shoot the messenger, not, you know, uh, uh, be too harsh on people who are, um, are, are not getting it fully right. Cause nobody's got it fully right right now. Um, no, exactly. It's a moment in time and a necessary part of the evolution of the conversation and the engagement around it. Totally agree. And how do we overcome, because you and I hopefully pride ourselves on being pragmatists and not just sort of, you know, drink our own Kool-Aid. There are equal parts within each of us as human beings that seem to have, there's a level of healthy self-interest where we want to take care of ourselves. And then there's selfishness where you do well at the expense of others. How do we resolve that blend of selfishness and healthy self-interest with the needs that we've got to solve for, for our future? Hmm. Well, I think um, you said healthy self-interest, and I've always said that uh, enlightened self-interest is really what we all need to recognize. And I think more and more we've called out the science and evolutionary biology that would say that we are the result of successful collaboration, humans are. Right. So I think the more that we uh, remember that and trust that and behave accordingly, the more that we're going to get to the future we want. I think, you know, fear is the greatest enemy of all of us. And it's very natural for all, for everyone to be fearful in times of very substantial change. And we're in the middle of a huge, you know, paradigm shift in, in the world. And so fear is natural. Everybody should understand that it's, it's normal and human to feel fearful but to allow ourselves to be controlled by that is to is to cut ourselves off from the thing that has led to the survival of our to the to our species, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, optimism and possibility are inherent in the human condition. Otherwise, we never would have gone. What could we do with that wheel or that flame or yes, God exactly. knows what? And help me understand because I think a lot of us at the end of 2022, with all the ups and downs and all the challenges we faced. Sometimes we struggle, especially if we look at the headlines, to be positive and so on. Help me understand the kind of logic waterfall in your head, you know, based on what you just shared as to why you feel optimistic or hopeful about the future to help all I of us understand. I don't always feel hopeful. I, I, right. I, and I think I said this from stage this year, maybe for the first time. I've had a hard year this year. I, I'm right. naturally an optimist and, and you know, tend to, to choose to look at the glass is half full. It's been hard for me. And, mm -hmm. but I, for, for me, there is no alternative. I mean, to, to take a pessimistic look view of the future is to give up and to, uh, and I, and wh where's the upside in that? <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's, it's all downside. And also younger demographics and these younger com companies coming through, I mean, are there any technologies out there that really excite you or that stand out in terms of all you? Oh my goodness. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in biomaterials development, which is exciting. I mean, the protein out of air, that's an interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I've shared with you my son who's in the workforce working for a startup that's doing quantum machine learning research on carbon sequestering materials alternatives, right? And I just, I, I see a lot of that going on and coming into our community, which is great. I think every technology, my, my fear about technology is always that we don't have the uh, practice of thinking through unintended consequences of our innovation. And I guess that's the one thing that, that, uh, that concerns me. I, I'm excited about it, but also, you, you know, to be I, mindful. I, trying yeah. to be, trying to surface the importance of that. And, and probably more so than most folks I've met in my life, you are a masterful community architect for change. What advice would you give us? Because each of us to our own degree, small or large need to kind of rally people around us and build these sort of coalitions of change, any sort of insights into the architecture of that or the strategies that you've used or the mistakes you've sort of learned from, I, that's probably a very loaded question. But yeah. <laughs> I come back to a, a couple of different things. One is listen first with compassion, say the truth as you see it with humility, realizing that you don't have the corner on truth. Those are, are two commitments that I have that have helped me bring people together that don't necessarily always find themselves in the same room. And I think that that's really critical. I think that that nature tells us that diversity is is a powerful tool for resilience and growth. And so we have to get back to learning how to listen to one another in terms of, it's, it's, it's sort of similar, but at a larger scale, aggregating the fringes, <laughs> meaning, meaning find those, those crazy voices at the edge of the conversation and bring them into the room. And again, listen for understanding, seek understanding before, you know, seeking response or, or criticism. I mean, I think the, the biggest impediment to human survival is our own ego and fear. And if we, you know, get back to understanding there's a, a larger power that is beyond all, all of us, any of us, and that we're not omniscient, any of us, and we seek with humility to, to learn from others. We have hope. Don't let fear lock us in the corner. <laughs> yeah, don't let fear win the day. And as you say, it's been a challenging year, but there is a lot of reason to be optimistic. I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, but you have a powerful telescope. So tell us about 2023. What do you think? What can we expect going into it? I think there's going to be an enormous growth in engagement in this work. I think there's going to be um, messiness and per perhaps setbacks associated with uh, attempts that are ungrounded. I think that we have to continue to hold hands and uh, and give each other permission to be imperfect and to make mistakes and to not let perfection be the enemy of the good. But generally speaking, I mean, the, the train has left the station. <laughs> we, we, you know, we are moving to a sustainable future and that's, that's the only alternative. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, those companies that get on board and get serious and put their money where their mouth is are going to be the ones that are leading in the future. And that's, that's it. Well, I want to say Cohen, as someone who's been a friend, a colleague, a mentor, for a long time now, I want to thank you for your leadership that began well before 
the stakes were quite so high and you've really guided us a lot of, a lot of us through this journey for so long. And so I want to say thank you on behalf of the whole sustainable brands community and beyond. And, it, and if you're listening to this episode, take a look at sustainable brands. It is an enormous, wonderful, loving, heart-led community of people who really give a damn and show up truly meaningfully. So I would encourage you everyone to do that. And Coen, thank you for your continued leadership. And I look forward to more adventures in the future. No, Simon, you, you all the same back at you. Um, it's it's been a joy for me all the way along, um, and I couldn't be here without you and, and the rest of the community. It's um, you you guys hold me up every day, and I know we hold each other up. So uh, on we go to better things. All right, all right. Thank you, Coen. Keep the smile. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal Seventeen Media. And you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead With We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead With We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon. And until then, let's all lead with we.